You can open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. And we're going to begin reading in verse 17. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we are grateful to you for your kindness to us and again for preserving for us your word. Father, it is our desire as Christians to be informed and to be challenged and to be changed by your word. It's our desire, Father, to know the truth, to understand you, to understand ourselves, to understand, Father, how it is that we are to live. So, Father, we ask that you would speak to us through your word. We ask, Lord, that you would grant us understanding. We pray also, Lord, that you give to us the strength that we need to apply your word to the way that we live and to the way that we think and to the decisions that we make. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to use your word to mature us as as your children. The Father, we may behave accordingly, that we may act like your children, that, Father, we may once again have lives that are filled not only with wisdom, but, Father, along with that, with a, a great sense of contentment and satisfaction and, indeed, joy. We thank you, Father, again for your presence this evening. Again, we thank you, Father, for your spirit, which works in us. And so we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 17, it reads this way. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. This evening, uh, we're going to kind of do a little bit of a review of what we covered uh, about three weeks ago, and then we will kind of continue tonight and probably next week as well. One of the things I want to do as we work our way through this passage is perhaps for some of us, maybe undo some things uh, that we have uh, maybe accepted or just kind of assumed was a part of Christian thought, uh, maybe Christian theology for a long time. I know that if you are my age and older, uh, you're exposed to a large uh, uh, segment of, the- of theology. It affected evangelical Christianity uh, in, the, in the 60s and then really took off in the 70s and also in the 80s. I'm just going to kind of throw out some phrases again that you may have heard uh, that um, aren't exactly really biblical or maybe they even misunderstood. Uh, there's been a, um, I guess, a desire by some, and I'm not talking about those on the charismatic side of things, but a desire by some or maybe an assumption by some that there's, I guess you would say, a mystical element uh, with, within the Christian life. Uh, the idea that um, when someone asks you to do something, we say, well, I'm going to go pray about it. And the idea for many people is that somehow there's going to be some kind of an impression. Whether that moment that you pray, sometime that night, maybe the next morning, or maybe someone will come along and say something that would give you the idea that God wants you to or not to do whatever it is that you were asked. And somehow that sounds much more spiritual than saying, well, uh, Okay, I'll, I'll, I will consider what you've asked me to do. I'm going to go home and think about it. See, that doesn't sound spiritual. That doesn't sound Christian. Now, the Christian, what he would, would do or should do in thinking about something is to think through uh, the gifts that God has given you, 
the amount of time that, that you may have or not have to take on this task, what the scripture says about it. We want our minds and our decisions to be informed by the word of God. We want to weigh those things out. We do ask God for wisdom, but we make the best decision that we can. We're not going to be waiting for some mystical sense that God wants us to do something or not to do something. And that's really very common. It was especially common uh, in the 70s and 80s in many different evangelical churches. And so what, what would happen is then you could, you could easily say no to many things but always be spiritual. I'm going to pray about that. I don't think that the Lord's not really given me the freedom to do that. And it could be all kinds of things. I'll never forget when I was, uh, when Cindy and I were newly married, there was a man in our church, or a guy we come across, his name was Castle Lee. Castle Lee had, uh, I believe, muscular dystrophy. Uh, he had to wear a brace around his chest and torso just to keep him, himself upright. Uh, he had no use of his legs at all, um, very little use of his hands, pretty much no use of his arms. Uh, he was just completely dependent. Uh, and he was a Christian, and he wanted to come to church. Well, the only way he's going to be able to come to church is for an individual to go pick him up. The family didn't have, I don't know if there were motorized wheelchairs back then. I guess there were. I just don't remember. I do know he didn't have one. Uh, and so the only way that he could, uh, and there weren't like all these cars they didn't have, like nowadays you can get a handicapped you can fix your van so that you can, you know, take on a well, they didn't have that. So the way you would pick up Castle is you go to his house. His daddy wheels him out. His daddy picks him up, bends over, sticks him in the car, fold the wheelchair up, put it in the, in, the, uh, in the vehicle. You drive to church. Then you get out. You pick him up, put him in the wheelchair. And then when it's time to go home, you pick him up. You put him back in, and that's how it has to go. And uh, so I remember my dad had asked a couple of different men if they'd be willing to pick up Castle. Well, they all prayed about it. Really didn't feel the Lord was leading him that way. And I'm like, so my thought is, so did God really say no? Someone needs to come to church. They want to come to church. It's going to be a little difficult, but that's supposed to be your brother. You're supposed to be his brother. And God said, no, I do not want you to pick him up. But apparently, that's what happened to them. Then my dad asked me, and to be honest, my thought was, I'm a Christian. I can pick him up. Yes. And so I picked him up. Uh, we had a little, I know you may find this hard to believe, we had a little Honda CVCC. So that's a, that's a, that's a, it's a car that's about that big. And um, so I would pick him up, and I picked him up every Sunday, almost every Sunday, because a few Sundays he would be, he would be ill, uh, but almost every Sunday for three years. Um, and then it came to a point where he could not come, and he died shortly after that. But there are many things like there's, there's nothing to pray about. You're a Christian. You just do it. That's it. It's, it's not hard. Um, but there's this idea that comes. And so, again, what that comes out of is this idea that there's this mystical aspect of Christianity. So what, what was also involved in that was the idea that if you weren't really experiencing the power of God, if you weren't really experiencing that sweet um, fellowship with the Lord, whatever that's supposed to feel like. But if you weren't really experiencing that, if you were finding yourself over and over again struggling with sin, well, the way that you take care of that is you need to come to a point in your life where you have absolute and complete surrender to God. And the way that that works is you, you confess 
as much sin as you know that you're involved in, you, there's complete, complete, complete conf- confession, then you, you ask God to fill you, and you just kind of, in a sense, let go and let God. And so you would have many uh, individuals who would go around and who would, who would preach. Sometimes preachers would do the same thing. And so then when you have what you call your altar call, the idea was is for those who, who wanted to renew their commitment, for those who wanted to really, you know, start walking with the Lord, uh, for those who really want to start growing in sanctification, you know, you come forward. And what would happen often uh, in certain churches is this would take place on a regular basis. Every month or every year, it would be like the same people going forward because they just they, they, they didn't feel like they had it. They just, I'm struggling with the same thing. And I just, I really, I thought I surrendered to God, but I guess I really hadn't surrendered to God. And I don't have that peace. And I don't ever hear God talking to me. And all those kinds. And so that was just continuing. I remember once I, I went to a, where it happened here in, in a church in, in uh, Savannah. We were there at the evening service. This guy was a well-known author. Uh, I think his last name was Taylor. He had uh, written several books um, about complete surrender to God or surrender to Christ. And so his message was on that. Uh, I'm, now that I look back on it, I guess he was just really brilliant at, at uh, not, not mind control, but at, at manipulating large groups of people. And so as he got into this message, which in a sense sounded so great, you know, if you really love the Lord and you want to surrender yourself to him and you can have the kind of life that he was describing... Uh, he said, you know, you, you need to come forward. He said, you need to think about it. He says, and, and he says, don't come forward yet. I'll let you know when you need to come forward. And so he kind of preached some more. Uh, and then he kind of walked to the side. And he said, uh, so you mean business with God? And he did this. Now, 300 people, boom, boom, up they went to the front. And I'm watching this. And I'm like, you know, I'm really skeptical about this kind of thing. And I'm watching them, I'm like, oh my word. You know, and then of course, those who are left in the pews, you feel like, and you make it feel like, you, you're not really serious about the Lord. Because you're not up here with the rest. They're crying, and they're, they're praying, and all this stuff, and what are you doing? I mean, are you, you're still in your seat because you act as if you've got your act all together. And you need to be like these individuals. You're not really surrendered to Christ. Or you're fooling yourself because you think you are. I mean, that wasn't always said that way, but that was very much the impression. And in talking to some people, they very much, they were feeling that, very much so. Uh, but also out of that came, you may have heard of this. I, I've mentioned this before, this was many years ago, uh, the idea of the carnal Christian. Just so you know, there's no such thing as that. Okay, we're, go- we're going to cover this again later, but when the Bible speaks of the carnal Christian, that's simply nothing more than the Christian who's living in the flesh. But that's not a category. But it was taught as if it was a category, that there were three categories of people. You have the Christian, you have, and who surrendered to God completely, that's where you want to be. We have the non-believer, you don't want to be him, because they're going to hell. And then you have the carnal Christian, and that's where a large number of Christians were. And so there was all this teaching and all these things, you know, trying to help that individual move out of that way, you know, and they would even have a little diagram where there'd be a circle that represented your life, and there would be a chair, which represented the throne of your life. And so if you were a Christian, and you were the kind of Christian you're supposed to be, then on your chair, there would be a cross, and they meant Jesus was on the throne. And then I guess there was an S that represented self, and the self was to the side. Still in the circle, but, you know, little S. But for most Christians, what it was is you have the circle of your life, and you have the chair, and the S is on the, is on the chair. And the cross is over on the side. 
and you need to get that fixed. And so there, and there's, there's just a very high number of books that came out about that. And the individuals who were teaching those things, they were, you know, there, there was no desire to fool people. They were very sincere. They, they, they loved the Lord with all their heart and mind. They believed that these things were really true. And it really opened the door to a lot of problems, I think, in the lives of Christians. I think it hurt a lot of believers, maybe in their growth, because they kept waiting or maybe trying to pursue some kind of a moment. That's what everybody wanted to have. You wanted to have a moment. So you see, it, it, it sounds almost like what we accuse sometimes charismatics of doing, but this was within solid evangelical churches. And so we all want to have that moment when we really came face to face with the Lord. Uh, what came out of that was the idea that you could be saved on one hand and, and live, and your life is absolutely no different till one day you decide to make Jesus Lord of your life. And then everything took off. Well, that's not in the Bible anywhere. But there was this idea that, that you could get saved, and, and, and I've heard people talk about it, where a, a guy would get saved, and then he would, you know, when he was 14, when he's 16, he's using drugs, and when he's 17, he's using drugs and selling drugs, and when he's 18, he's uh, running around with all different kinds of girls, and when he's 20, he gets married, but he's having, you know, several affairs, and now he's drunk, and, he begin, and he's beating his wife, and this just goes on and on and on, and then when he's 29 years old, he gets hit by a car, and he dies, and we have a funeral, and the pastor says, well... We know we had his fire insurance take care of, and he's with the Lord now. I wonder what the wife thought. You know, she's still putting ice on the last bruise that her husband gave her. And it was that way all the time. There was no evidence that there was any interest in Christianity. And then what many other individuals experienced is to say, well, you know, I, I came to Christ when I was nine, but, you know, I made Jesus Lord of my life when I was 30. And that's when things really began to turn around, and I became interested in the Bible and interested in theology, and that's when I began to share my faith. And that was great that happened. Most likely, that was when you got saved. That's, that's what that probably meant. All right? But there was this whole, whole thing. And so there's been a lot of things. So what I, my, what, one of my goals, I guess I would say it this way, is I want to kind of demystify Christianity. And some people get disappointed with that. They're like, oh, don't do that. Because somehow it's, it's so appealing or it's, 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 I guess it's more fun if it's kind of that mystical aspect, at least a little bit of it somewhere. Well, I'm not trying to be a party pooper, but we want to just follow what the scripture says. And we're not trying to get rid of emotion. Emotion has a, a great deal to do with the way we learn, the way we live. And we're not against any of that. And we do want to, as I mentioned before, we want to rejoice in the Lord. And we want to be happy and praise Him and be excited about the Christian life. All of that is definitely be a part of our lives as Christians. So we're not, we're not trying to get rid of any emotional aspect of it. We do want to make sure that emotions don't drive us. We want to make sure that we're not allowing our emotions to lead us because our emotions can lead us astray. We want our emotions to be in subjection to our mind. We want our mind to be in subjection, in submission to the word of God and what it says. And so we want to make sure that we have a good handle on that. And so, uh, again, what all, you know, I'm, I know I'm a little bit all over the place to a degree, but all this is going to continue to come together as we kind of march our way through this. I do think the first key, which I failed to mention about three weeks ago, is in verse 17, where he makes this statement, all right? Because this, this by itself, I think, demystifies that aspect of Christianity that, that people had kind of thought was, was how the Lord would work in our hearts and lives and lead us this way or lead us that way. He says, therefore, do not be unwise. 
So it, right from the very beginning, he's dealing with our mind, he's, and he's dealing with our knowledge, and he says, don't be unwise. What is wisdom? Wisdom is the ability to use correctly the knowledge that we have. And, and when we're take, speaking of, of being a Christian, we're talking about the knowledge of the Word of God. We're talking about theology. We want to <clears throat> speak in wisdom according to what the Bible says. So he says, don't be unwise, but, or in contrast to that, understand what the will of the Lord is. So the idea, again, is back to knowledge, for us to understand what it is that God wants us to do. And there are many things that, if you think about it, there's, there's not a whole lot to pray about. Uh, I'll give you an example. I was talking to a man once, actually to a couple. They were, um, they were close to uh, divorcing. According to them, they were close to divorcing. They both uh, claimed to be Christians. They both have been in church for, for a long time. Um, they were going to another church, and they didn't want to talk to their pastor because that would have been embarrassing, so they wanted to come talk to me. I said, okay. So we're talking. And so I, as we were talking, within the first five minutes, I told them, I said, well, there's something we have to get straight. I said, as Christians, you do need to understand something. Divorce, in your case, it's not an option. Period. And she said, well, you know, I don't know if we can just say those kinds of things. You know, we need to pray about that. And I said, that's of the devil. She said, what? I said, why would you pray about something that God's clearly commanded as if God's going to change his mind? He's not going to change his mind. He's not going to say, well, I know my word. I've said I hate a divorce. But in your case, no, there's nothing here. So there's nothing to pray about, period, except maybe your desire to obey what God says. That's it. And so, and so, again, we, we have to be very careful. And I know you may have done this. I know I've done this in the past. I try not to ever do this now. You know, when someone says, you know, we do this, we do that, I say, well, I'll pray about it. Usually what I, what I mean if I do say that is, well, I'll, I need to think about that. I need to think about it. And, again, that's not being non-spiritual because I'm thinking about it as a Christian. But I never want to leave the impression that I'm going to, I'm going to pray about it and somehow there's going to be an impression. I may get an impression, there's still no guarantee that's from God. I mean, how would I, how would I evaluate that? I really felt strongly in my, in my heart that I should teach this Bible study. Well, teaching a Bible study is a good thing. But you know what? Maybe I'm already teaching enough Bible studies, and I really can't commit to teaching that Bible study. Maybe someone else needs to teach that Bible study. I'm not the only Bible study teacher that's around. There's all kinds of things that kind of come into play uh, with that. And so, uh, again, we want to make sure that we're thinking as we ought to. And then, of course, uh, the verse that we're going to be spending a lot of time just thinking about and looking at is verse 18, where he says, Don't be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And that was the key for a lot of those, that kind of teaching. And the idea was is if you can be filled with the Spirit... You would then be led by the Spirit, and if you're being led by the Spirit, it's almost as if you're kind of living on a mystical plane. And, I, and what I firmly believe as a believer, and so I'm kind of giving you the short answer right away, and then we're going to kind of build the foundation later, and that is this. You, you do the things that God's asked you to do in the disciplines, the reading of the Bible, praying, Christian fellowship, etc. Continue to expand your mind and your understanding of the Word of God. Definitely pray and ask God for wisdom. And then as you do that, live in obedience to what God says. If you do that, God is already leading you. It's, it's, you don't wait for God to lead you. He's already doing that. 
He's le- in your life, he is already leading you. He's not off in the bleacher somewhere, kind of watching you lead yourself, waiting to come in at the last moment. That's not what he's doing. He's, he, I take that by faith. He is leading you. But, so, but, the, but the thinking that some people have is, well, you know, I know I did those things over there, but, you know, God wasn't leading me. Well, actually, God was leading you. You weren't following. That's what we have to get straight there. I'm the one that's responsible. He has given me, and there's enough commands in here to fill up our life anyway. There's enough here to, to guide and, and lead us and direct us to do those things that God wants us to do. There's, this, again, this idea of some mystical leading, that some impression, because that can, again, get you in all kind of trouble. And it is interesting that for many, not for everybody, but for many, when it comes to the seeking of the, um, of the leading of the Lord, we still end up doing what we want to do and not doing what we don't want to do. So what, where, where is the impression really coming from? So, and it's okay to say. I've, I've told you before, I said, well, I'll be honest. I, I really, I'll say this. I feel like, like I want to do that. And when I say that, I don't mean I have thrown my brain away and my emotions are carrying me along and I now want to do this. That's not what I mean. When I say at times to an individual, I feel like, yeah, I feel this would be a good thing for me to do. That means that I am thinking about it I have made that decision, and I guess in a sense without saying it, you know, my emotions are kind of all in tune with that, and yeah, I'm, I'm going to commit myself to do that. And there's nothing wrong, again, with doing that, but we have to be careful. We say, well, you know, the Lord, because then what happens if you do something that doesn't go well? What, what was that about? God told you to do that. You know, I've had people tell me, well, you know, I prayed. I've had several people say this to me through the years. Well, I prayed before I got married. Asking if this was the will of the Lord. And man, things aren't working out. And I guess I just didn't hear right. I said, really? You prayed, and you believe God told you to marry this woman, and now after five years, you somehow now think that you misheard the Lord, or maybe you just disobeyed. God said no, and you married her anyway. And so are you now saying it's the will of the Lord for you to leave your wife? Because I don't see that exception clause in the Bible either. But there are those who actually believe. This was, this was uh, in fact, I, th- I do think in some churches they still struggle with this. There are those who actually believe that when it comes to their troubled marriage, that they can pray and either God is giving them his approval for the divorce or that their marriage really was out of the will of God because when they prayed about it beforehand, they either weren't listening or they were disobeying God then. So now this marriage was never part of the will of God. And so to divorce the wife would still not be wrong. And that's the kind of convoluted thinking that people get involved in to simply basically pursue what they want. Uh, and, uh, and so, again, we want to make sure that we, we realize that, that there's nothing spiritual in that. It's not Christian. And that's not the way that God uh, wants us to do things. So again, verse 18 then, where he says, Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation. The word dissipation means excess, existing hopelessly out of control. So we don't want to be out of control like, like an individual is when they're drunk, but we are to be filled with the Spirit. Again, now that's a command, and because it's a command, that's where at times it's become a little confusing to individuals. Uh, and so hopefully this week and next week we're going to clear up what is meant by that. Uh, when he tells us to be filled with the Spirit. But again, it's not a suggestion. In fact, it's an urgent imperative. All right, so it's a, this, this is what God wants in 
your life. This is what God wants in my life. Uh, it is be filled. It's a command, which means I play a part in it. Uh, and so, again, this is where that teaching comes in uh, that I've been talking about. And so these are the kinds of things that they would say. Well, you cannot be filled with the Spirit while I have unconfessed sin within me. Now, that can sound really good in the beginning, but let's think about that for a minute. How many of us have unconfessed sin in our life? I bet you it's all of us. I don't know about you, but I cannot remember every sin I commit. I'm convinced that I'm such a sinner that I am clearly aware of some of my sin. I am not aware of all of my sin, period. So technically, we could say that at least most of us, maybe all of us, are always in a state of unconfessed sin. Man, we are in a heap of trouble if this stuff is right. So according to this, if you have unconfessed sin in your life, you cannot be filled with the Spirit. Thank goodness that is nowhere in the Bible. All right, so we can clear that one up. Number two, uh, I cannot be filled with the Spirit while conducting my life in the energy of the flesh. Now, there are times when Christians do this, and the idea behind it is, is that uh, we are li- we're trying to live the Christian life on our own, apart from God. And, and the phrase we use is, well, I'm, I'm trying to do that in the flesh, in my own power. Now, so how is it that I live the Christian life in the power of God? Well, again, it's not a, it's not a mystery to that. It goes back, again, most of it goes back to the very basics of the Christian life. I exercise my dependence upon God on a daily basis through prayer, asking him for help, asking him, you know, all those things that we ask God to do for us and to help us with. When I read the Bible, when I listen to the Bible being read, uh, when I listen to sermons where the Bible is being explained, what I'm doing is I'm trying to fill my mind, I'm trying to fill my heart with the Word of God and what it says, to be reminded of its truths. That strengthens my soul. So, again, if, when I'm doing that, I am... I am seeking to live the Christian life in, in the Spirit or by the power of God because that's what's going to be energizing me. It's not a magical thing. It's a very practical thing. Also, um, then our being with other believers, the encouragement and the strength that we receive just from being with each other, by, by being together and praying together, praying for each other, listening to the Word of God together, talking about what we're learning from the Word of God, uh, talking about how God's answered prayer, all those things that we do. Those things help me. And so as, as, I'm, so as those basic things are taking place, and I seek to live in obedience to what the Word of God says, I am really leaning on the Lord. The individual who's doing it in the flesh, and I'm going to kind of use an, an exaggerated illustration to a degree, but the idea is, is that you really don't spend much time at all reading the Bible. If, if, if I mean, Monday through Saturday, you, you rarely pick it up, if at all. Besides praying for meals, there's not really much prayer except, oh, Lord, I'm hurting. Can you help me get up? You know, those, those kinds of short things. There's not, really, there's not really a committed time to prayer. And you don't really have any Christian fellowship. You may talk to other Christians about sports, but there's no real Christian fellowship. There, the, the, the Lord and the things of the Lord doesn't really ever come up during the week. So as you live that way, we, and we can become very accustomed to living that way. We, you, know, you, just, you go to church, and you just kind of live your life. So what happens is you are still trying to be very moral. And you are normally trying to be Christian, you know. Uh, But again, the Christian things you're doing is limited to, well, I go to church on Sunday, and then I I do try to do good, and I try to be patient with my spouse, um, and I want to make sure that we pray before we eat. 
uh, you know, those types of things. And so in the end, what you're really trying to do is you're trying to live and follow the commands of God, even though you may be unaware of many of them, but you're doing it in the flesh. Well, I do think that we slip into that pretty easily from time to time. We don't intend to. Uh, some are, in a sense, purposely living that way. But again, if, 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 if I'm at any moment in my life conducting my, the, the life, my life in the flesh, so to speak, and not actively depending upon the Lord, if that then means I can't be filled with the Spirit, there may be some difficulties uh, with that. And then also with, with that is another phrase that's used or, or a teaching, and that is that I cannot be filled with the Spirit while I am resisting God's will and relying only on myself. Now, I would like to say that I always, with great eagerness, live in obedience to what God says. And that's getting better in my life. But there are moments that I, I know I've had this thought. I don't want to be patient right now. Now, even though I may be acting in patience, in my mind, I'm not acting in patience. I still think that's a sin on my part. That happens a great deal because I can be really impatient. And I'm getting so much better. You used to, if you saw me before, you would say, this guy's in the ministry? I mean, it, it was bad. All right, but the point is, is that when it comes to this, if, if somehow we have to make sure that we're in this position, that we're n- never resisting the will of God uh, to be filled with the Spirit, we're going to be in trouble. We are human beings. We are in a body of flesh. We are going to struggle with sin. We're going to be giving in to sin. We're going to be tempted to sin. And I'm not trying to give an excuse for us to sin, but it's an issue. It's a problem that we, that we struggle with. And that's why we need God and need each other. And again, our, the goal of our lives, one of the goals should be for us to sin less, even though we never become sinless. And we should take that very seriously. But even to take that seriously, I need the help of God. I need God to continue to work on my heart so that I will take those things seriously. Because apart from that, I... I'm not always going to take that seriously. I'm going to be thinking, well, what's really the big deal? You know, I'm going, to, I'm going to begin to think, well, I know I shouldn't have said that. It was a little white lie, but, and we really believe it. It was really a little, whatever that is, that, it was just a little white lie. And, you know, it doesn't really affect anybody. And we just kind of, you know, well, you need to be careful with that. So again, the idea is, is that um, the idea, again, as I mentioned before, is to let go, to let God and uh, this is, comes out of this misunderstanding of what the scripture says. So again, the idea is that you need to be sure you've taken care of all the sins that have emerged in your life, that you have not ignored the wrong that you have done before God and to others. You need to walk in uh, a conscious dependence on the Lord on a daily basis, and all that's good, but that seems like to be, it's, a, it's a prerequisite to being filled with the Spirit of God. So then what is uh, often stated, uh, that is what is often stated when one comes to this passage, this verse 18. So, several different things uh, that we'll work through. Number one, being filled with the Spirit obviously should be understood in a metaphorical sense of someone's being full of a given substance. Uh, if, if, you're wine, if it's wine, you're drunk, or spiritually is the Holy Spirit. It is not being drunk in the Spirit. That's a charismatic teaching that is, has nothing to do with the Bible. I don't know if you've ever seen a video. Hopefully you've never been to a service where this goes on because it can, I think it can feel satanic. Uh, but there are those who talk about, um, in certain churches, um, uh, they'll have a service where there are people who are laughing uncontrollably, and they call that the joy of the Lord, the laughter of the Lord, that's not what that is, but anyway. Uh, and then sometimes there'll be individuals who within in the service act like they're drunk. Now, they've not been drinking, but they begin to stagger and stumble and 
do all kinds of things. And then some preachers have said where they're, they're, they're drunk in the Spirit or they're, they're drunk by the Holy Spirit. And so then often others will laugh at the way they act, but they're all supposedly praising the Lord when that takes place. And that's supposed to be the movement of God. Well, that's not the movement of God. We can explain that, what's going on in a lot of ways, but that is not a helpful thing in any way, and it's not Christian, but it takes place. And so this verse is not saying, don't be drunk with wine, but be drunk with the Spirit. It says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And there's a difference between those things, and there's, that's the reason why the, the two different words are used. Secondly, being drunk with wine, as I mentioned before, is parallel with being foolish. Being filled with the Spirit is linked with wisdom. So again, remember that. So a person can act foolish whether they're drunk or not. But those things are parallel together. An individual can be filled with the Spirit, and that is like living in wisdom. Again, the wisdom here, the presupposition is your presupposing wisdom is that which comes from God. The book of Proverbs says that the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. And also another place says the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And so those things are linked together with what it means to be filled uh, with the Spirit. Thirdly, there is no explicit reference for believers to ask for filling. Now, I'm not going to say that it's a sin. It's not a sin if someone asks the Spirit of God to fill them. You know, for, I want to be led by the Spirit of God, and I'm asking to be filled. There's no sin in that. But there is no command to do that anywhere in the Bible. There's just the command to be filled. But this idea that we, we need to pray or seek this is, is not implied by that command. Uh, we're, we're, we're looking to God for the, for the filling appears to be the major emphasis of what this is saying, because God is the one who does the filling. Okay, God is the one who fills us with His Spirit. When you become a believer, we are baptized by the Spirit of God into the body of Christ. That happens automatically. It's a work of God. The moment you are regenerated, God the Spirit comes to live in you. You don't have to ask for it to happen. It happens immediately at that moment. It t- God takes care of that, and so we are part of the family. I'm regenerate. The Spirit of God is living in me. Um, uh, I need to learn to submit to the Spirit of God, to the leading of the Spirit of God, and all those things, which we'll get into some of those things. But again, it is the work of God. He's the one doing that. I don't have to seek it. I don't have to pray for it. I don't have to ask for it. The minor theme, so the, so the major thing is that God is the one who does the filling in this, in this passage or in this verse. The minor theme is that it is the believer's responsibility, and you'll hear me say this over and over again. It's very simple. We are to lead, number one, obedient lives. Remember that the word obedience or obey is, is really falling on hard times in our culture. There are those who presuppose or it's assumed that if we have to obey, that somehow that we are immature. If, if we have to live in obedience, it's somehow that our religion is, is treating us like adolescents because we have to obey these rules. And, and it's kind of at times said in a mocking way. Just like when, when, a, when, when you ask them if, you have teenagers together, and the one teenager, his friend says, hey, man, let's go. there's this abandoned house on the street. Let's go down there and, and throw rocks through the windows and, you know, whatever. And he goes, ah, I'm not sure my mom is going to let me do that. Oh, do you have to go home and ask your mommy? All right, so there's that mocking tone about that kid, and the idea is to get them to come with them to do whatever they want to do. Well, what happens in our culture, uh, with, especially with Christianity, the idea that there are laws, rules, uh, uh, principles that we that we need to obey the world wants to mock us because the idea is that we need to be your own person you need to think for yourself and and you think for yourself and do what you want to do 
And what, that's why it's important for us to teach our children that it's not demeaning if they obey us, and we also obey the Lord. We want them to obey the Lord. It's not a demeaning thing for that to happen. It doesn't mean that you're less of a person. It doesn't mean that at all. And we, so we want to instruct them on that. And we want to, make, we want to remind ourselves of that as well. Uh, so that, again, we can counteract the attack of the world, the attack of the evil one who wants to come against us and somehow, in a mocking way, uh, get us to, to think that somehow that to live in obedience to the word of God uh, means you're not being your own person. You're not being your own man or woman or whatever the case happens to be. So we have a responsibility, though, to live in obedience to what God says. And there's no shame in that at all. And we know that as we sit among each other as Christians. We value that. It's important that we continue to value that and uh, reveal that we value that when we are in the world and when others speak to us about our faith. And if you think about it, a lot of other faiths and religions, they have rules as well. Uh, But Christianity is the one that's often mocked, um, to say the least. So we are to lead obedient lives. We know that we are to lead circumspect lives. The idea is that we examine our lives in accordance to what God has said, to what God has revealed. I, I want to make sure that I'm living in a, in a holy way. That, that's a good thing. Um, and so I have a responsibility to do that as a Christian. Uh, and also I want to live a circumspect life, not only in relation to God, but to others that are in the church as well as others outside the church. When you look at the uh, qualifications for deacons and elders, in both those uh, instances, it is um, stated that they need to have a good reputation. And that also means a good reputation among non-believers. It doesn't mean non-believers may not hate you. It doesn't mean they may not make up stuff about you. But the idea is that for those who know you, uh, if they're going to speak bad of you, they're going to have to make it up. Because you have a good reputation of being honest, of being kind. I know we're not looking to the world to, to tell us what kind of a Christian you are, uh, but we are asking to tell us what, how you act as a Christian. Do you treat people fairly, or are you prejudiced, or are you this, or are you that? Uh, for example, there may be, uh, let's say there's an individual in our church, and he's, let's say he's been nominated for deacon, and let's say as far as everyone is concerned, man, he ticks all the boxes, all of them. And we, we, we look at those on the outside, those outside the church, and let's say that he ticks all the boxes, except we find a few people who work with him, and somehow we find out that, let's say he's always telling racial jokes, and, and there are certain minorities he just can't stand. That would then mean we would put the brakes on. Whoa. Because Christians don't do that. Period. Especially one who's being considered to be in a position of leadership. Because the idea is one of what? Consistency in our lives as Christians. The way we act and live here is the way we act and live outside the church. And so um, we then, as believers, I want to be filled with the Spirit of God. God is responsible for that. My responsibility is to live in obedience to his word and then to live a life that is examined. Uh, where I examine my life, I, I ask the Holy Spirit to examine my life. I ask others to examine my life in relation to God, in relation to other believers, and in relation to those who are outside the church. And again, as all this goes on that we're talking about, the Spirit of God already lives in uh, the life of the believer. He indwells the believer. So what God desires for the Christian community and for individual believers to do is to manifest the Spirit's presence. That's really, I think, uh, Not the only thing, but one of the main things that Paul is driving at. Because again, he's writing to a church. So we want to keep that in mind. As he he writes to the church, this is how he wants the congregation to behave. It does apply to us as individuals. You know, we're not bypassed in this. 
But this is, what, this is how he wants us to behave. So the idea then is that as a group, as a local church, Paul's desire, God's desire, is for you and I to live our lives collectively uh, in a way that reveals that the Spirit of God is here. We see that in 1 Corinthians 14. Paul is going through several rules uh, for, uh, in helping the church there to deal with their problem when it comes to the gift of tongues. And there's all kinds of issues going on there, and he's trying to help straighten things out. And when you read through 1 Corinthians 14, he comes to a part, uh, they're about halfway through, I think, um, where he talks to them about the idea that a, a person who's uninformed, a non-believer, comes in, and if everyone is speaking in tongues, he has no clue what's going on, and, and probably will conclude that everyone there is just mad. These people are insane. But then he says that if someone comes into that group and everyone is prophesying, meaning people are, are basically, they are uh, talking about the word of God, they are declaring the word of God, they are explaining the word of God, they are speaking the word of God, and he can understand them. It then says, he comes to that place, and he will then say, God is here. So the idea is, is that there's to be this orderliness to what's going on when this group gets together, when they worship, to the degree that the unbeliever can walk in and there is being manifested before him a, I guess you would say, a group desire to talk about what we, what we do. We talk about the Word of God. We read the Word of God. We explain the Word of God. We pray the Word of God. We pray about the Word of God. We want to encourage each other to live out the Word of God individually and collectively. And so we're holding the Word of God, what God has said high in this group. And so what should happen, what we want them to be able to recognize when they come in is they see a group that is together committed to that. And that would be an unusual sight for them. And so then they would then say, wow, God, man, God must be here. And just so you know, there's been a few instances. We've actually had individuals, I've had individuals say that to me. Say, man, I, man, this, this place is really different. I, I'll never forget this one guy. Um, this is back in, I think, 2002 or 2003. We had a young man who visited our church. And he ended up coming here for about two years before he moved back to New York. And when he came, uh, his very first Sunday that he was here, he was stunned by, by something. I didn't find this out until later. Um, you know, when I, whenever I preach... It's just a matter of habit. The very first thing I say is, open your Bibles too. And I give the reference. And he said he, he was stunned. I said, what do you mean you're stunned? He said, man, there is this, this weird noise. And I was thinking, the AC's not that loud. You know? And what it was is, he heard a majority of people opening their Bibles and turning to that. He never heard that. Because in the church he came from, they didn't have Bibles. They, they could afford them, but they didn't use them. You know, they might throw a verse up on the screen. And so he never heard, I, I don't know how many people were there that, that day. I don't know if it was 175 or 200 or whatever it was, but he, there was like 200 Bibles. And then this is what he said after that. Man, that was the coolest thing I ever heard in my life. It was just, and I'm sitting there like, you know, I hear, I hear it all the time. This is not a big deal. He just, because it was the Bible and everybody was like, he, he just thought it was great. And then he said this, he said, it's like people really want to know what's in there. I go, yeah, we kind of do. <laughs> and so it's pretty cool. So that's the idea here that Paul is getting at when he makes this statement about not being drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. This is to the church. He wants us to be like this. Fourthly, uh, obviously, he, 
Paul's desire is for believers to be filled with the Spirit continuously. This is, this is to be our lifestyle. We, we move in this direction on a regular basis. And then fifthly, as I've already mentioned, and so I won't go into detail, the, the thrust here really is corporate. Um, and that is what we are to do as Christians. We do this collectively in worship. We do this as individuals as well. So whether we're at church, at home, in the workplace, wherever, this is what we're doing. So there's this corporate dimension of being filled with the Spirit. Um, and we want to make sure that that is definitely uh, communicated to those who come here. Um, and so it's not this little private experience that somebody has. Let me end with this. Sixthly, let me say this. Paul's primary concern is the church's corporate growth and its effectiveness in mission. In other words, he mentions the summing up of all things in Christ. And so it's the church collectively that's going to manifest that to the world. That, that's what the world needs to see, is look what the, look what the church is doing. Look, look what the church is saying. That's why it is so important that we're always careful what we do as a church. It's really important in, in, uh, as what we do as a church and what we don't do as a church. So there may be many things that you and I can do as individuals, but the church as a church, we're not going to do that. Like For example, politics. If all of you get involved in one way or another in politics, that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. We need Christians. But it would be, I think, wrong for Ferguson Avenue Baptist Church as a church to be involved because that's not what the church is about. It's not what it's for. It's about the gospel. And the moment that happens, you got trouble. Without intending to do this, we're compromising our mission. We're compromising what we're supposed to be about. We've lost it. And so we want to make sure we keep that, keep that uh, really very clear in our minds um, as Christians. And sometimes that can be, there can be some difficult decisions to make. Uh, it's not always really clear, but that's kind of what should be going on in our mind. Earlier on in Ephesians, Paul talked about Jewish and Gentile unity in the body. Uh, he used temple terminology to describe God's people. We are, God's people, a holy temple in the Lord. We are built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And so that's what Paul wants others to see in us, that the Spirit of God is here and he's with us. In the unity of the Spirit, God's new covenant community, that's what we are, that's what Christians are, a covenant community. We are in the new covenant. We are, we are as a body to attain to the fullness of Christ, which involves the use of spiritual gifts, the spiritual gifts that are used. We all have a spiritual gift, and we use that in ministering to each other. That's what we are supposed to be doing as a church body. We're together, collectively, we are, to be, we are turning away from sin. We are seeking inner renewal. We are seeking separation from the world, so to speak, uh, as we give in to the leading of the Lord and do those things that God wants us to do. And so, again, this is what Paul is encouraging. So, again, what we are doing is we are demystifying, again, the, that spiritual mystical aspect of Christianity that has kind of lingered around for a long time that has caused a lot of problems. And the Christian life is not a hit and miss if I can just get to the point where I'm empty enough, if I can just get to the point to where I'm, I really surrender everything to God and I, and I just really get in tune with the Spirit. It's, it's not that. It, to be in tune with the Spirit is like what we're doing now. And we can then say, I go to church because I, I want to go. I can also say I go to church because the Lord's leading me. And we've mentioned before, that can sound really spiritual. But both are accurate. Why do I go to church? I want to. Someone asked me once, there was a, a, a lady when I was working in the jail, this lady asked me, she says, why, why do you want to be a chaplain? 
And I said, I really want to do this. And this is what she said. Well, I am surprised. I thought somebody like you would say that you really felt that God was leading you to do that. I said, oh, he did. Well, you said that you wanted to do it. I said, so do you think that God would be leading me to do this and I, did, and I don't want to do it? Well, I don't want to do it, but God's leading me. I have no choice. You know, it's not that. You know, they're both those things, they're both true. I said, but God leads me my life. I said, why else would I be doing this? But I do want to do this. And, so, and that's an accurate statement. And so, again, it's, um, we want to make sure that we're, we're using that kind of terminology so that we can maybe uh, get rid of some of the gap that seems to exist in some areas between what it means to really follow Christ, to love Christ with all your heart, mind, and soul, and to live in obedience to what he says and, and to be filled with the Spirit. So we get more of this next week um, and, and now maybe the week after that. But hopefully you'll have a really good solid grasp of what this is. And we can, with great confidence, uh, lead the lives that God wants us to, to lead. I also think that this has a connection with what we talked about this morning because you are now more free to enjoy your life. You don't have to, you know, put this prerequisite in front of everything. Like, well, you know, I, I, this seems so unspiritual. I just don't know if God's really leading me to do this. And you don't have to worry about all that. You really don't. Uh, we, we are free. Obviously, we're not free to sin, but we are free to live our lives and, and to pursue those things, uh, even to this point. So if you are, I know this can sound funny, but it's okay. If you want to be a Star Wars nerd, that's not a sin. It can become a sin, but for those who are Star Wars nerds, I guess it's a lot of fun. That's okay. Just don't let it dominate your life, all right? Or you can be like me, be much more practical and, and really enjoy football. It's much better. But anyway, um, but nonetheless, the point is, is that we can have all those interests. And we don't have to somehow make everything sound spiritual. We're not, we're not in that trap. So relax. Enjoy the life that God has given you. Allow him to lead you as he said he would and fill you in every way. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you so much, Lord. We pray that you would help us to get a good grasp of the things that Paul is saying here. We pray that t- tonight and next week and the week after that we'll really get a good handle on it and, and that we will be less easily led astray. Father, I know that maybe some of us here have truly desire to be close to you and, and we've been maybe barking up the wrong tree uh, just because of things that have been repeated uh, in a very large part throughout most of our lives. So, Father, we pray that you would help us to be discerning. We pray that you would help us to live in obedience because we know we need your help, Father. Help us to encourage others to live in obedience. We pray, Lord, that you would eliminate the, that unknown factor, that mystical thing that some people think is what makes Christianity exciting and help us to realize that what makes it exciting is that you, the creator of the universe, love us and that you have given your life for us and that you have adopted us, and that you have guaranteed to us uh, to live with you for all of eternity in your kingdom. And, and Lord, there, we need nothing more than that to be excited about the life that you've given to us. So we do thank you and ask that you would continue to, to guide and direct us, Father, and help us to recognize your leading. Help us, Father, to immerse ourselves in your word, that we may live by wisdom. 
And so we thank you. And again, we thank you for your ongoing presence in our lives. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.